Ben, welcome back. So for today, I'm just really excited to have on our next guest. He is tremendously talented. He is... Um, He's kind of like a sketch guru, I guess I would say. <laughs> I don't know if, if you'll use the term guru or not, but I mean, he, he definitely knows what he's doing with sketch. He is the creator of the Sketch School, a training center dedicated to sketch comedy, and he's taught sketch internationally as well as represented the United States Embassy. Huge deal. He's um, been uh, our associate artistic director, has been with Second City for over two decades. I will not tell you his whole life story because he's here to do that, you guys. Um, please give a warm welcome to Mark Warzeka. Thank you so much for that wonderful intro, Samantha. I'm so happy to be here with you. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and before I forget, you guys, because I always like to say where you could find them, um, go on to thesketchschool.com for more information and anywhere else that they should follow you, Mark. That's probably the best, best place. place. Yeah. And Sketch School also has, we're, we're at Sketch School on, so on Instagram and uh, Twitter as well. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had a, the pleasure of being taught by Mark uh, years ago when I was uh, at Second City in Hollywood. And so I'm really excited to have him on the podcast and have him share like some of his journey with you guys. And, you know, just, I'm sure he's got lots of awesome things to say, but like, how do you, how did you get started in sketch? Was it something that you always wanted to do? Um, like, yeah, I, I mean, I, <laughs> it's funny because in retrospect, I was really obsessed as a toddler, I guess, with Sesame Street. And I look back on that now and sort of realize that was my first connection to sketch comedy because sketch Sesame Street is a sketch variety show for little kids. Like that's really what it is. It's like an educational sketch comedy show for little kids. So I think from an early, early age, I love the, the format of sketch comedy. And certainly by the time I was a teenager, I was obsessed with it. I loved, I grew up in Detroit and or just outside of Detroit and I was really heavily influenced by Saturday Night Live, by the kids in the hall, which we were which we were seeing from Canada. Those I got kids in the hall just kind of hit me at, at, at the exact right time to be a huge influence. And then there was a certain amount of luck or I think chance in this end up being what I did as a career because I the, the second city, you know, the was is rooted in Chicago. The Second City Comedy Theater has headquarters in Chicago. It's been there since 1959. And then they've had a Toronto theater as well in that started in the 80s. But the Second City has had for brief periods of time theaters in other places. And they happened to open in 1993 a Second City in Detroit. So one opened and I started going when I was young. And I think it being there and present and me having the opportunity to take classes there uh, is really more than anything what ended up taking me in this direction of doing sketch for a living. Mm -hmm. What was it about the classes there specifically? And were you doing like other actory writer things as well? Or was it mostly like you're interested in the sketch? Did you ever get like that theater nerd? thing going on <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, you know I yes yes absolutely my friends and I did a our own sketch comedy show like you know like I, you know like when we were teenagers uh on stage and we shot sketches like I was doing it constantly on my own so I definitely had that bug to do it the theater nerdy comedy nerdy sketch nerdy stuff right that you're right. saying I definitely had and then I think it was seeing the shows, I think it was seeing the shows more than anything, the live Second City Detroit shows and seeing that cast take things that had happened because Second City is very satiric and it's topical. It's responsive to what's going on in the world today. That's part of the mission statement of that theater is to, to be that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, stuff would happen in the, in the world that day and I would go to the theater that night and see them doing improvisations or sketches about it that they had just made up and it blew my mind. And I think that more than anything sort of hooked me into it. The classes themselves were fine at that time period. I mean, like, <laughs> like comedy class improv and sketch classes, I think since then have really, really evolved. Mm. I think they've become a lot more uh, professional. I think they've become a lot more in depth. 
I think there's a lot more value in them now than there were then. It was a very short pro improv program of just a few classes of basic exercises at the time, really. And that was it. It's now it's a now it's a, a much bigger mm-hmm. thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. I, I and I find like it, it can really vary depending on what school you go to. I mean, yes. given like obviously if you're at Second City, you're gonna get like the second city thing, but um yeah, like I've definitely seen like a variety of if somebody says like they do sketch or they do improv, you don't necessarily know like I don't always know exactly what they mean. Do you know what I right. you know what I mean? Yeah, like I I know, I, I, I know like uh there there are a few things that it can mean, but but it can be different depending on on where you are. Absolutely, because a comedy sports class is gonna be different than a ground links class, it's gonna be different than a UCB class. And they did not have when I first started, at least in our area, there were no sketch like the stuff we do at the sketch school there was nothing like it then and there's not a lot like it now i mean sketch is sort of an afterthought still sketch classes are still sort of an afterthought at a lot of the big comedy theaters uh which is part of the reason that i wanted to form the sketch school they sort of have most of the major comedy theaters have a really extensive elaborate improv program that's fantastic and they'll have a little bit of sketch classes, you know, like they'll have a couple levels of sketch classes that are good, but it sort of feels like a side thing yeah. rather than the main thing, you know? Right, right. Well, and then for like the listeners who aren't familiar with sketch, how would you, how could you describe that to them for like, you know, it's different than a scene or it's different than like, what makes a sketch a sketch? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that is a trademark is the length, right? Like sketch is typically three to five minutes long, or basically when we look at it as writers, it's generally three to five pages long. After that is a, is too long <laughs> for most, <laughs> for most sketches. Right. And then you have like a short film or something. And yeah. Then you have a short film or yeah. like, just keep going and write a pilot. Uh-huh. Just keep going. <laughs> just keep on going and write a pilot or a play or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but sketch should be short. And because it should be short, um, there are a lot of things that I think are particular um, to the in the sketch writer's toolbox. We have to be great at finding the funny right away. We have to be great at get it, making it funnier fast. And we get good at at doing. If you if you get good at sketch, you get good at creating beginning, middles, and ends mm-hmm. in a very short time period. And all that stuff is good for sketch writing, but it also is good for any type of other comedy writing that you might do, you can apply the skills, you yeah. know, to other stuff. Yeah, definitely. And and I'm glad you brought that up too, because you know, obviously, like, I I love hearing how um, whatever job it is that people have or their their career, their passion, whatever it is, and how that skill set can impact other areas of their lives. Do you do you find that um, with all of your work in sketch that it's maybe like how has that affected you as a person, or maybe helped you to handle things and in different ways. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind uh, for me with that is the, is thinking about ensemble because some sketch writing is done solo, right? Some people are solo sketch writers, but a lot of times you're in a position, especially if you're working at a, at a job where you're in a room, right? You're in a writer's room essentially. And you have to learn to collaborate with others. You have to learn to accept other people's ideas. You have to learn to help their ideas work and flourish, even if they, even if you don't love them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want the room to be successful and the overall show to be successful. So I think those, the group work that happens in, in a sketch writer's room, I think a lot of those skills apply to any type of group work, any type yeah. of group work that you would do. Yeah. One of the th- things that I remember from when we did get to that part of like making our shows at Second City, like the ensemble shows and like pitching our sketches. What I remember was um, how we had to be confident in order to share our sketch idea. And Mm -hmm. even if maybe, you know, I felt like it wasn't totally formed or this or that, like you kind of had to sell it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that kind of gets me thinking where even if somebody isn't interested in having a writing career, just the practice of, you know, writing a sketch, finding that beginning, middle and end, and then coming and being confident with, with sharing that with the group to try to sell it, how that could really help them if they have a sales job or whatever they're, whatever they do in their, you know, nine to five life. 
Yeah, that is such a great point. Because especially when when pitching, we're always talking about that when I when when I've been teaching or in the direct, you know, director head writer role, and it's time to pitch, because this is what I was taught, you know, when I was a when I was a writer, like uh in in the ensemble, like is that you've got to pitch your idea as you're saying, Smith. It's like you've got to pitch it confidently always and no qualifiers. A lot of people say no qualifiers. Like you can't walk up there and be like, well, I don't know if this is good, but I thought of it last night and then I fell asleep and I woke up this morning and I kind of thought it wasn't great, but I couldn't think of anything better. So anyways, here's my idea, right? Like we don't yeah. allow you. We say you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. You got to just be like, even if you half thought of a crappy idea, you got to sell it. You got to be like, listen, all right. There's a nun and a hot air balloon and the hot air balloon's about to crash and she prays, you know what I mean? It's like, you've got to, you've got to, it's got to sound confident and that confidence can be great. I had the opportunity to work for a run of shows with, with Martin Short, the legendary, you know, comedy actor. And if you ever watch Martin Short, if you see him appear on anything ever, he has 1000% confidence all of the time. If you see him on a talk show, for example, they'll introduce him, ladies and gentlemen, Martin Short. As soon as he comes out from the curtain, he's beaming, confident, confident, confident. And it is, and I know from having got a chance to work with him and talk with him, it is a choice. He's, it's not his, it is a choice. He has decided, he believes that comedy is all about confidence. And so he projects a thousand percent confidence all of the time uh, in any time you'd ever see him. That's awesome. And I love hearing about like, you know, some of these, you know, amazing comedians, wonderful professionals that, you know, that so many of us admire. And then hearing that they still make that choice to choose to be confident or they still like, they still get nervous, but they're like, here I am. It's go time. And we don't see it. Like we have no idea. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know we we tend to think that um, that they're they're operating in some different way than the rest of us operate, and it's like they're not. They're doing. You know I mean? like, <laughs> they're not. They're just doing the same stuff we're all doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. So, what was it like? You got to be an international representative at the U.S. Embassy. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure I saw a presidential handshake. In one of your photos, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, the the yes, sketch comedy has led me to some <laughs> some uh, interesting places. Mm -hmm. But um, we, when I was working with Second City, we Second City got a call from the United States Embassy, and they said we have. It was the embassy in Latvia, in Latvia, in Riga, Latvia. And they said, you know, we have a very small, very small sketch and improv scene developing here in Latvia. And it literally was like one group of people. And they said, we're wondering if Second City could essentially send a little troop, a delegation of writer performers to come and do workshops and joint shows with this with this troupe that's here in Riga and we'll we'll send you on a tour all around Latvia together and you could perform and it would be a, a you know a cultural um exchange isn't the right word but a cultural connection mm -hmm. and I was lucky enough to be asked to be one of the four people to go so we first went to on our way they sent us to Oslo, Norway, and there is a sketch and improv theater there in Oslo. And we spent a few days there working with folks in Oslo that really had a, a pretty well-developed, a uh, small but really well-developed scene in a great theater there. And then we went to Latvia and we did this tour for like 10 days <laughs> around Latvia with this Latvian troupe who had picked up, and you hear this story a lot, especially in improv, like, they had gotten their hands on a translation of um, 
of Truth in Comedy, this, this famous improv book. And then based on that, and then I think they had Viola Spolin's improvisation for the theater. And then based on that, they just started working on their own. Like no one taught them. They just started doing it. They wow. just started doing it and built a thing and started to get audiences. And they were very funny and very talented. And we, we traveled around Latvia with them. <laughs> That's so cool. It was very cool. And the ambassador was wonderful. She had us to the embassy and met, we got to meet with her in her office. And she actually personally came out to one of the shows, uh, which was very neat. But it was a great honor to be able to exchange, to have this cultural connection and exchange our own individual um, approaches to the art form. Yeah. And I think the funniest laughs I've, I think probably like the, 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 if not the biggest laughs I've ever gotten for anything in my life, it's gotta be like top three or top five was a game. We, an improv game that we played in Latvia (laughs) that went like this. Okay. Let me see if I can describe it. So young Latvians, you know, since they Latvia broke away from the Soviet union from that moment, most Latvians learn, um, they learn English. So, so their English is, is, is pretty good. If you're like 30 and under, your English is pretty good. So they speak English well and Latvian. And then we only spoke English and not Latvian. So this is how the improv scene went. <laughs> this, it was their idea that was hilarious. So the two, Lat- two Latvian improvisers would improvise a comedy scene only in Latvian. And we, two of us, would watch. And we don't know what they are saying. We only see what they are doing. We pick up their emotions and their intonations, right? But we don't know what they're saying. Then when they're done with their scene, we recreate the scene. We do it over in English. And we'd say what we thought they were saying but we're completely guessing because we don't know. Right. And Latvian, the audience, because they speak both Latvian and English, understood both versions. Uh-huh. And I think we were making complete and total fools of ourselves. <laughs> but they, it was, they, it like brought the house down. It was so much fun. Oh, that, that would be really fun. <laughs> yeah. That kind of reminds me of like the, the translator game. Yes, it was like a version of yeah, the translator. Game. Except for how fun for the audience to actually know what's being said. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How cool. And we never knew, like, we never found out <laughs> what they were actually saying. <laughs> oh, they we just never didn't told know afterwards. I guess they wouldn't remember, probably. Yeah. That was the thing was like, by the time it was over. Yeah. 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 Wow. What were some of the like, um, like differences, differences in humor? Um, could you can you remember any any of them specifically? You know, like I, cultural it, differences in that. Yeah, it's such a great question because I've been lucky enough to to travel to to a few different countries teaching and directing and performing. Did these tour that we talked about? And I did several different sort of intense, you know, several week long um, workshops in in Tokyo, working with Yoshimoto Comedy and, and teaching comedians there about sketch and improv or our style of sketch and improv and learning theirs. And every time I've been on one of these international like tours, I always am thinking the comedy is going to be wildly different than our comedy in the U S right. But like the majority of it isn't like if, you know, when, when you're touching on just basic human experiences, relationships, you know, uh, work, (laughs) you know, complications with your friends, drama with the person you're in love with, breakups, family unit, all of that, it's all universal. I mean, it's all universal. Like that kind of stuff plays anywhere. The only things that get different are if you're getting into, you know, political or social satire, that's going to be more specific to the individual country. We did, I was fortunate enough to work for, um, for Comedy Central, which is called Paramount Comedy in um, in Spain. And we did some workshops there in Madrid. And it's like, you know, they have, a, they have Spain has a wildly different um, political history and modern political history than the United States. There was, you know, a fascist regime, right? Like it was a different situation. So they can't, 
can't or don't approach political satire in the same way we do. So that was different. But like the basic human stuff plays anywhere. Physical comedy plays anywhere. Heightened emotion and high stakes plays anywhere. All that stuff plays everywhere. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense in terms of um, like... Once I started doing stand-up and they would talk about so much about like common knowledge for for the jokes, which I mean, we may have they may have touched on at Second City, too. But I just remember it more hearing it in stand-up. Like if if you haven't if you're not talking about something that's common knowledge and or if you haven't established it for the audience, how can they laugh? Because they don't even know they don't even know what the turn is. They don't know Mm. what to laugh at. So it makes a lot of sense that like, yeah, relationship stuff, everybody's human. So there is that common knowledge, no matter where you go of like what those human relationships are, but government stuff and history and this and that, like, it's going to vary so much. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to be, that part will be totally different. That part will be totally, but like we did it, we did a lot of improvisations in, in the Latvia tour of this was their idea, the Latvian troop. Uh, of like they had this game that they love and it killed it. It was really fun, but it was like, you would get this, it was an improv where you would get the suggestions of two animals. So you'd get like bumblebee and whale. Mm-hmm. And then the, the game was, or it wasn't even a game as a scene. The game would be a scene between those two animals falling in love. So it's the day that the bumblebee meets the whale and falls in love. So one of you is the bumblebee, one of you is the whale and you improvise that scene. It's like, that kind of stuff is like, it killed it. It didn't matter. It was universal. You know, it's universal. The yeah. animals in love and, you know, it, it, it works. I wish I could have seen some of these. So fun. <laughs> they were interesting. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So another thing that I'm curious about is um, like, I know, um, you know, I, 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 I'm a fan of Saturday Night Live still. I'll watch, you know, and so, yeah, I still enjoy watching it. Yeah, um, grew too. up watching it too. And so, but now, hmm, how shall I put this? Um, currently, I'm living in Seattle. And Seattle tends to be very, um, like, very uh, careful <laughs> about, like, when you're doing comedy. Like, you don't want to be offensive and yeah. um, not, like, stereotypes and things like that you know everybody has their own opinions and i'm not saying it's not good to be mindful of everybody's feelings but um sometimes when i'm watching saturday night live i just wonder how it is for the performers like with the character they're doing i don't think they're necessarily going after a stereotype so much as maybe like a stock character or maybe you'll help me finish what what i'm actually trying to say of just how do you how do you craft those characters where maybe it it might seem like a stereotype but not make it a stereotype and still be, you know, able to poke fun at something and have fun with something. And at the same time being mindful of like sensitivities. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there is a, there is a, a part of it that is um, uh, subjective to in that like one performer may have, higher tolerance for a certain type of humor than another performer. But I do think like, I am not of the, I am not, there's, there's a, there's a a thought process in some circles, comedy circles that like the audiences have become too sensitive and it's not fair to us as standups or sketch performers because they're too hard on us now and they're offended by everything. And it's the audience's problem, basically like they're making it hard on us. I do not believe that. I think that audiences have evolved and audiences always evolve. Mm -hmm. And I think that if, to me, I think that it's on us as artists and performers to try to meet the audience where they are and, and uh, make them laugh and make them laugh. And so I I think it's hard, you know, I mean, I always, when you're mentioning the stereotypes thing, I mean, uh, you know, especially when you're, when you're a a newer writer or performer, it can be challenging because you might be trying to 
create a character that is uh, culturally sensitive and or socially satiric, but you don't yet have tools. Mm -hmm. You don't have enough tools in your toolbox. You're not experienced enough to know how to do that in a sophisticated way. And it could come off stereotypical, even if you didn't intend it to. So like new performers and writers have to be really careful of that. Hopefully on a level of SNL, they're past that point and we see more sophisticated stuff. But I agree that in all circles, it's maybe not, we're maybe not as evolved as, as it needs to be and hopefully will be. Yeah. And thank you so much for like, just how you put that about having the tools so that you can be confident in how you're doing it. Cause I almost felt like, Oh, the word stereotype. I feel like ah, I don't have, cause I don't feel like that. That's not like the, um, that's not the point of sketch. You know, I don't, I, that's not how I understood it, understood it. And I, I think that to get around that in my comedy, I make sure that I'm talking about somebody specific or it's about my, you know, something specific that happened to me or somebody specific that I know so that I'm confident in knowing well, hopefully they don't get offended. I'm not saying anything that I think is offensive, but if they do, I can back it up with, well, actually this was a specific thing. This, mm -hmm. this is the intention. And like, I, I'm very clear on it. And um, I don't have as much experience like writing sketches. And so I think, yeah, like when I've been trying to write more of them, I know like the characters are so heightened. Um, right, right. Because they're heightened, I think without having that, all of the necessary tools, it can go to a stereotype place if one isn't careful. Absolutely. And yeah. Because we are trying to that. exaggerate. Yeah. Like, exaggeration is a big, is a, is a, is a primary tool of, of comedy, of all mm -hmm. comedy. So we are trying to exaggerate, but you're right. I think that that can be a fine line of, all right, I'm exaggerating, but through the exaggerating, Am I perpetuating a stereotype or am I exploiting the thing that I'm trying to condemn? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, that's so great. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, cause we really can never control how the audience perceives it, but we can be confident in knowing why we're doing what we're doing and what the intention was. Yes. Yeah. And I feel like we have to be willing to, I feel like we have to be willing to hear an audience if they're not on board with something we're doing, we have to be open to making adjustments and tweaking and trying to improve it. That that's how I feel. I'm not of the school of like, uh, you know, I just going to put my stuff out there and if they don't like it, screw them. I, I think that's too close minded of an attitude. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I, I dislike it when I see it out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, you know, ultimately it is being done for an audience. You're, we're not just yeah. like in our rooms, just performing it to the walls or, yeah, <laughs> you know, our cats or dogs and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And not everybody's going to like, it. you know, not everybody's going to like everything all the time. Mm -hmm. And maybe you're, maybe I'm off. Maybe I'm off. Maybe I am accidentally yeah. in too stereotypical of an area. I want to hear that and make, and be able to make an adjustment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also like just the idea of the boldness and courage that is necessary for improv and sketch. Mm -hmm. Like, I just find it to take, you know, a particular kind of courage because like, even what we were saying, like with pitching, you don't say like, okay, is this good? Or, you know, like you come in and you say your idea and you're, you like, and even like when you jump into the scene, like making your choice or, you know, with your characters, making bold characters and, um, I'm interested in, in how that can carry on over into people's lives as well when they're off the stage. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think that, I think that sketch and improv, as you're saying, this is such a wonderful question. I think Samantha, like thing to kick around. Cause I, I, I strongly believe that both sketch and improv, as you've pointed out, trains us to be fearless and to make bold, strong choices. And I know that this idea of like the term strong choices, I know like gets made fun of sometimes and well-deserved probably <laughs> in, act, in acting circles, but it does oh. teach us that. Uh, my friends did a show, my friend Sam Pancake and Drew Drogi did a very funny two-person like live show called like strong choices where oh. they were like acting teachers making fun of 
That's so funny. That's actually that's an awesome thing to to thank you for pointing that out too because I feel like that's such a word that people can hear and take it any number of ways. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to uh, get to take this um, or you know get to attend this Zoom you know a Zoom oh a Zoom call they're all the rage right now yeah but it was like the Casting Associates of America or something like that and some really great casting um, professionals on it and when they were talking about strong choices. Um, then they said, you know, that doesn't always mean it's a, a, a loud choice. It just, you have a very specific opinion. Right. And um, I love, I love that definition because I think it's very easy to, to think, well, if I'm making a strong choice, that means I have to like jump into the scene and like be loud or take up a lot of space or this or that. But you know, you don't necessarily have to do that. You just have to be very, very specific. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm glad you said that because honestly, I don't think I've ever uh, made that like distinction in my mind, but it's a very important one that absolutely when we say strong choices, you're right. It does. It does. It could easily sound like that means come in and take over and yell and scream and be, uh, you know, Chris Farley energy all the time. And there's a time and God bless Chris Farley. Cause like, he was brilliant and wonderful and, and, and genius and insane. And there's a time for that Chris Farley type of energy. And sometimes we do mean, yes, bring that. But yeah. but moreover, like when we're saying strong choices in sketch and improv, it means what you just said to me. That means specific, a specific point of view, a bold take on something, something you really believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, yeah, it means getting specific and detailed. Yeah. Not loud. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, just the practice and knowing like you come in there and you make that choice, but then you still get, you still stay open to your scene partners. Yes. Like that's, that's another thing I think is so great about, you know, that training um, like sketch and improv training is it's teaching you to make strong choices and be fully present and take action. And at the same time, include everybody else. So you're not doing this like, you know, totalitarian or dictatorship or whatever. You're not like, it's not a mode of a sort of selfishness of like, I'm my choice and it's my way now because I made my choice. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, no, that's such a great point because you don't want the idea of strong, bold choice to mean bulldoze everybody. (laughs) The the Michael Scott office when he's always got like the gun in his improv class. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we don't want it to mean bulldozing. We want it to mean specific, specific, make a choice um, that is specific and unique to you and uh, a point of view or a a worldview of your character that you're going to come in as, but come in with something. Yeah. And same thing with sketch. We need to make sketch like improv. It's so short that we have to be, we have to make uh, strong choices <laughs> quickly. <laughs> we got to make them quickly yeah. for because we got to get something to happen. We've only got three pages or whatever, you know, four pages, five pages. So we got to get something going fast, mm-hmm. fast. Do you have any like, um, like tips or like pieces, favorite pieces of advice for like, um, building a sketch or building a character that you could, you could share for, for free with these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I mean, one thing that I do, one thing that I do that like we do in our main sketch school workshop, which is, which is called start writing sketch comedy now is one of the, one of the sections of, of, of one of our, our, our sessions of the class is we look at like, what are you looking for? as a sketch writer, what are you looking for when you're trying to come up with ideas to write a sketch? And I I really, frankly, I'm like super proud of this section of the class. I hope it works for people. Um, But I'm super proud of this section of the class because I've been fortunate enough to teach at a lot of different institutions, sketch writing and there, and, and places have great sketch classes all over. But one thing that I felt like I don't think anybody's teaching is like, how do you come up with a sketch to begin with what they're teaching? They're, they're teaching structure, but like you'll sit in day one of a sketch class and they'll be like, so write a sketch and bring it next week. And one thing that we're writing sketches too in our workshops, but one thing that I wanted to try to do is go back a step and go, how do you even come up with the idea to begin with? What are you looking for? 
And so we do some exercises around that. And I, I'm happy to share some of them here, but one of them, one of the things I encourage people to look for is just an unusual thing that has happened to them. An unusual thing that um, feels off or odd to you in some way. Because a lot of times what people think is that as sketch writers, we're walking around going, what's funny? What's funny? What's funny? How can I make this funny? Mm -hmm. But we're really not doing that. What we're actually doing is walking around going, what's odd? What's unique? What's a weird little thing that's happened lately? Um, so like, here's an example of one I, I, that really happened. I always try to take something for real life yeah. <laughs> and yeah, do yeah. it and do it with my classes. I'll say, here's one that happened to me that I think is an unusual thing that maybe could be a sketch, but I haven't come up with a sketch yet. So like, um, the one that we did in, in our workshop the other day was we, I hadn't take my daughter to the playground in a year because of the, yeah. because of COVID of course. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, she was. I had to be really active with her at the playground because she's not old enough to play on her own, but a year went by and now she's almost five and suddenly we go back and she's old enough to do everything on the playground on her own. So I used to sit in judgment of the parents <laughs> who were just head in their phones, never looking up at their kids while their kids played on the playgrounds. I thought what crappy parents get up, have fun, play with your kid. But now here I am after one year returned to the playground and my daughter can play on the whole playground by herself. She doesn't need me. And there I was sitting there <laughs> staring at the phone thinking, thank God I can look at my phone. I said, I became one of these people. So anyways, yeah. this is an example of like, for me, something that would make my sketch radar go off. I don't know what the sketch is yet. I don't even know for sure if I could get a sketch out of this yet, but I'm looking for little things like that, that just tweak me little odd things, unusual things where I think there might be something there. Mm -hmm. And then in our workshops, we go through a process of like, all right, how do you go from that idea yeah. to the actual sketch? Awesome. And we talk a little bit about, um, use an example from, from SNL, which is the more cowbell sketch, uh, oh, the yeah. Wilfred more cowbell sketch <laughs> yeah. with, with Christopher Walken. And we watched that one together in our workshop as we're discussing this whole concept, because there's a quote from Will Ferrell of like, every time I would listen to that Blue Oyster Cult song, I would hear that faint cowbell in the background. And I would think, what is that guy's life like? So like for years, this is just something that's like in his mind, on his radar. He doesn't know what the sketch is. He doesn't know what the idea is. He doesn't know yet, but he just notices this is a funny little thing. I'm going to write that down. <clears throat> and eventually years later, he's able to get what became like a cult favorite yeah. sketch out of it. Yeah. That's so awesome. When, when Rachel Dratch was on vacation with a bunch of friends in Costa Rica, one friend who she will not name <clears throat> publicly kept saying depressing yeah. things. Right. So like she went, Oh, that's odd. That's unusual. And then uh -huh. she went away and put her sketch process to work on it and decided that could be a game, uh -huh. a character-based game for a character sketch, which became Debbie Downer, which was yeah. like her signature. So we're looking for those little things. We're looking for those. That's so neat. And it seems like, um, cause I'm thinking obviously like I know writers and performers going to want to come to the sketch school. And then do you have lots of like people who are just doing it like just for fun or to like enrich their lives or, you know, they don't have any, um, aspirations of being on like SNL or getting into a second city show or something like that. Yeah. It's a mix. I would say most of our writers who take workshop with us have some desire to do it professionally. And yeah. then there are some who are taking it to enhance their overall writing skill set, or just to be creative or just to have a good time. And yeah. they're welcome too. That's awesome. Yeah. And even just like the way you were saying, like walking around and looking at what's odd, what's unusual, you know? Um, and it's so funny because, well, I guess I shouldn't say funny. I, of course, you guys, if you can't tell, I'm looking forward to taking another class at the sketch school. I've <laughs> taken one already, which was awesome. I'm looking forward to taking another one. So I was happy to get them on here. So some more of you can hear, hear all about it. But yeah, because I thought about that, like with the standup, but I haven't thought about that with sketch of, of, you know, that same sort of like, how you just described it as a good like starting point of how to like get a sketch going. So mm -hmm. 
Oh, that's very cool. Um, ooh, okay. So I'm just seeing the time now. I, and I, I shouldn't take too much more of yours today, but, um, (laughs) do you have any like, um, best and or worst advice that you were, that you were given regarding as you were getting into sketch or getting in, you know, into writing or the arts or anything? I would say, I mean, in terms of some advice I would give as it to, for, for writing or performing comedy, I think that the most important thing for you to be successful is to be able to identify your own comic voice, your own specific comic voice. And that means your own point of view, your own take, your own persona, um, what is unique or special about the way that you look at the world. And I don't know how to develop your own comic voice out without having a tremendous amount of experience under your belt. So I would say to anybody who's interested in this stuff, write a ton if you want to be a writer, perform a ton if you want to be a performer. Know that you've got to reach your, you most likely have got to reach your 10,000 hours, that Malcolm Gladwell thing, right. right? And that also you have to be bad at anything before you get good at it. You have to first be bad at it before you're going to be good at it. And that part is painful. And it sucks. And I personally hate being the new person at anything because I'm a type and I want to be in control and I want to be, and I hate being bad at anything, but first you're going to have to write a bunch of crappy sketches before you write a good sketch. First, you're going to have to do a bunch of bad performances before you do a good one. First, you're going to have to write a bunch of bad pilots before you write a good one. And so I would say to anybody, know that what the ultimate goal is, is to find your persona, your specific comic voice, so that you can uh, boldly put that out into the world. And to get there is going to take some time. It's going to take some time. So the more you can do of it, the better to get yourself there faster. Awesome. Yeah. I love that idea. Like, and to be realistic with, with oneself. You know, in well, the sense totally. that you need your 10,000 hours, like, and to not get discouraged if you're not where you want to be yet. Like, did you put in the time yet? Did you, did you put in all that practice yet to get to where you, you want to go? Yeah. And people are hard on themselves, especially, uh, when I was teaching in, um, here at different institutions where I am right now in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. I thought that the students at the different, um, comedy institutions I've taught at here, uh, the, the student writers and performers were harder on themselves in Los Angeles than any of the other cities I've lived in or taught in. I think people were so rough on themselves because they they feel, I think, this tremendous amount of pressure here of like, I moved here to get into, you know, a lot of people are like, I moved here to get into show business and they'll be in their first ever improv class or their first ever sketch writing class. And they'll feel like, oh, if I'm not great at this right away, yeah. it means I don't have a future in this industry. And it's, it, it puts a, they put a tremendous amount of pressure on themselves and it creates the opposite of what they, of what you want, because, mm-hmm. because it's adding to the pressure and making it harder to be creative, right? It's making yes. it harder to be creative. So it's easier said than done. I've been so hard on myself throughout the years. I hate being bad at things, but like, that would be the, the advice I would give is to allow yourself to know that it, it it's okay to be crappy at something for a minute. It doesn't mean you're not going to be great at it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, that whole like knowledge is power and just knowing like part of the process to help alleviate, hopefully how hard on ourselves that, that we are by just knowing, you know, what, what the truth is in a way. Like I, um, I heard the other day that when, people are reject are, are reject it was a, like an online class like when people are re- so it was a good source but like when <laughs> when humans experience rejection no matter how big or small it is the area of the brain where we we're you know processing it is so close to our pain receptors that we we physically feel pain that's why we uh. physically feel pain when we're rejected and i thought to myself what a good thing to know uh. you know because then if we are kind of, you know, licking our wounds for a moment or just, you know, you take that little time out to to revive yourself instead of feeling like, why do I feel bad? I shouldn't even feel bad. But actually, you know what? That's how you're wired. You feel mm-hmm. bad. You'll get over it. Move on. Don't dump on that extra weight of 
I shouldn't be feeling this. Well, guess what? That's how you're wired. Let yourself get, because that gives you permission to let yourself go through it. Yep. Instead of fight it and going through it, it's going to help us get to the other side of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that applies to exactly what we're talking about here with creativity. Absolutely. Um, well, okay. So did you ever have, um, was there any really terrible advice that you were given? I mean, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. Somebody told me to lie on my resume. Oh. That wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, oh. like, like what? <laughs> one of my early teachers was like, one of my early acting teachers, like I took like this business of acting class and he was uh-huh. like, you know, if you don't have any credits, just make up credits. They're, no one's going to ever ask. They're never going to know. Just make them like logical ish. So I'm like, okay, I'm like 17. So I like make up credits. I put <clears throat> that I was in Macbeth. I put like <laughs> two Shakespeare things on my resume that are complete lies and like a made up theater. And then I had like got some jobs and I was working and they were like, Will you do some press? This is when I was an actor still, which I was only an actor for a few years and realized I liked the other side of it more. But like, they were like, will you do some press for the show? So I'm like doing an interview and the reporter has my resume. And he's like, what is this theater? Where is this? That oh is my this goodness. Macbeth show. And I'm like, oh, it closed. And he's like, what, <laughs> what role were you? Who did you play? And I'm like, uh, we just did a couple scenes from Macbeth actually. So I'm not exactly sure what to that's not so lie on your resume. And then you I picked know. one that's like one of the most well-known shows. too. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't pick some random thing you could have easily lied about. Right. No, I picked the, I picked like Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet. I think <laughs> what an idiot. So don't, that's not good advice. Do not lie on your resume. If somebody tells you to. They're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, you guys, when you're improvising on the stage or on the page, that's not your resume. Like making stuff up. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So funny. Okay. And um, then what's something that you'd tell your younger self? Hmm. Or something else. Cause I I know that there were, there were a lot of really great pieces of advice you just gave. Yeah. I would say the, you know, the thing that we said about like, tell yourself to be bad at it. But I mean, I should tell my, I need to tell myself that still, you know, like I still have to tell myself that because so, so that's, you know, that's a challenge. I would tell my younger self that you're going to, you know, this is the kind of stuff that comes with age and experience. That's like hard to buy when you're younger, Mm -hmm. but like, I would tell myself that you're going to benefit more creatively from having some balance in your life than from only being a hundred percent doing the work all of the time. Because I think I really thought through my, cause I, cause I, I'm, I'm 44 now. So like, I really thought through my, and have been working in the industry since I was 17. Wow. So like, I, so like, I really thought, in like my twenties and through most of my thirties, I thought I've got to throw myself in. My life can only be this all of the time, the business. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think that I've learned that that is, is not helpful to me anyways. What's helpful to me is have some downtime to be able to recharge, to meditate, to do yoga, to go for a walk, to have some, to have friends and hobbies and stuff that is outside of the business because it ends up refilling the well. Yep. It ends up refilling the creative well. So instead of feeling like I'm burnt out and exhausted, but I've got to keep going, which is what I used to feel like a lot. I think I feel like now I can I can recognize when it's time to have some balance and refill the well. And I just didn't trust that or know about that when I was younger. So I think I would say that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that as well. Um, absolutely. I know there are certain times like I'd be afraid to take a vacation. So I'm like, I might miss this audition or, Oh, oh that yeah. Coming up and I want to do that, you know? And it's just like, no, you still got to live. 
So and you could always train, you could always change your plans if you have to, but mm-hmm. you know, like carve out that time for yourself. And then normally what I would see would happen for myself and other people as well is that, I mean, I, I mean, I know it may, I'm not sure how much it is for other people who aren't actors. Right. But like, I, I would see, um, a lot of people would start booking right around yeah. then or when they came back, you know? Yeah. So it's like, like your energy shifts or You're something. You're right. Right. Yeah. You don't feel so uh, desperate and clinging on to it. And um, the artist way I think is helpful for this type of stuff. I don't know, Sam, if you've ever done the artist oh, way or read the artist way. I, I did. I had the book, but I did not go through it. So yes, yeah. it's a good reminder. <laughs> yeah. The artist. It's way helpful, but, but part of, out. yeah. But part yeah. of the artist way philosophy is this kind of stuff mm. where they're like, do some things that, you know, Go and do something that is just for you that inspires you. Go yeah. on an artist date. Be creative in other ways besides the thing that you do. Um, so it, it's good. It's a good tool for 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 getting some that a little balance. bit more well rounded as an artist. Because essentially, part of the philosophy is the artist way is that we end up when we're too narrow vision, when we're too intensely focused on it, we end up blocking ourselves. Like yeah. we, you end up getting creatively blocked. Yeah, you're not doing anything to refill. Yeah. That's not good. So true. And, you know, I think back on like my time, like when I was at second city and I, I definitely felt like sometimes like the prep, I did put too much pressure on myself, like jumping in the scene. You have to jump in the scene and like looking at it too much for like, where do I jump in? And like, um, I just, I, I, I'm like, Oh, it'd be so fun to do it all over again with what I know now and do it better, do it better. I think that all the time. Like, yeah, I felt like in when I got to do the directing program, I felt it was it seemed it felt a lot easier for me. Um mm-hmm. in terms of, well, I suppose by then I'd finished the improv conservatory, so I was already like kind of I had more practice. But on top of it though, I wasn't thinking about I wasn't thinking about well, I'm performing right here or I've got to like do this right there. I was thinking more in terms of like I think like, you know, the scene, which I probably should have been doing when I was acting but it was, it was like a perspective shift. Right. Um, and it just made, it made things easier and more fun. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I re- when I, we're talking about this stuff, I reminded of my friend, uh, Eric Black, who was a brilliant, brilliant performer, but he was in the second city Detroit main stage cast. And so you do it for, and I was his understudy when I first got hired. And so you do this you know, you, you do eight shows a week, you're rehearsing constantly, you have no time for anything else in your yeah. life, but yeah. doing, doing this job. And it's a dream job, but it's an all consuming job. Yeah. And he'd been doing it for almost three years. Wow. And we were hanging out in the dressing room one time. And he's like, I don't know what to do because I don't want to leave this job. This is a dream job. There's nothing else I want to go do. It's amazing. But I've been here for almost three years and I have nothing else to write about because, <laughs> because <laughs> everything interesting that happened to me before I got this job, I've already written a sketch about now. And, and nothing else has happened to me in three years except doing this job. <laughs> He's like, I have no, I'm out. I'm out of things to write. I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I feel like that, that, that's something where I hear, um, like I hear people saying a lot of times when comedians get like really, really famous like their sets aren't as good as when they were trying to get to where they are now. Right. And and you hear that about musicians too. Like that second album is never good as the, as the first big hit album. Yeah. Maybe less stuff to write about or. Yeah. It's like you poured it all out into the big thing. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh. I'm just, I'm going to, I'm just going to not make myself pause and think about that for five hours. But <laughs> there was actually, oh, there was just one other last thing I want to say when you were talking about, you know, um, having more of a balanced life and, and, and um, how that helps to feed you. I saw, um, heard, I don't want to, both of those things probably on Facebook a couple of years ago, somebody posted this thing where it said, uh, live life from the overflow. It was like a teacup. The teacup was full. And, you know, there's a little bit stuff on the saucer, but I loved the visual because I love tea, but I also love the visual just because of that idea of like, stop giving from an empty cup, like make sure oh. you're full and then give from the saucer, so to speak. Right. You know? Right. I mean, I agree entirely in it. 
I don't think I do it perfectly even now, but it's something it took decades for me to recognize and be able to improve upon. And I, I just think it really helps to have that balance. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely something I'm still working on as well. Maybe by the time we're 95, we'll be pros at it. Yeah. <laughs> even, and I even hear like, I know, right. Like I'm a big basketball fan, but like, you know, LeBron James is, he, he's been pretty open in interviews the last couple of years of like, he's like, I've learned now that when I go home, like if I've got two days off, like I got to go home, like I cannot think about basketball. Mm-hmm. Like I go home and shut it off. Mm-hmm. And he met, he's, he's, he's become a, um, a frequent meditator. And he's a, a spokesman for, a, for one of for a meditation app, I think the calm app, because oh. he's, he's, felt this to even somebody at that level, right? Like right. arguably the best in the world at what he does. It's like, I gotta, I can't do that. I, I can't yeah. be in basketball mode 24 seven. Right. It's I not good it for me. Seem like it's, um, I'd be curious, uh, just cause it, it does also seem like it is part of the process. Like you're saying of like aging or like you put after you put in your 10,000 hours, you yeah. know, it, do, it does feel like there is a stretch of time where if you want to be an expert at something where and you are like an achieving personality type, or you're just really passionate about it. Um, you know, I feel like it's, it's a very human thing to do of kind of being somewhat obsessed with the thing, right? doing it as much as possible. And maybe do that for your twenties, maybe do that for your thirties, but you don't need to do that. Like for all of the decades of your life, right? Like definitely not it when you're 95. No, we will figure it out by the time we're 95. By the time we're 95, you guys. <laughs> Hold us to it, okay? <laughs> I'm jealous of you being in Seattle now. Seattle's such a cool, artistic, chill, artsy oh, place. Thanks. That's 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 a that's kind of you. I actually um, I came out here for graduate school, and so this is where I was living before I was in LA, and then I wound up uh, just like I just like wanted to be near family again. So I was like, let me let me try doing this again, like up here in Seattle. And it's interesting because, um. When I came up here, I honestly wasn't sure if I would like, I wasn't really thinking about career at that time. I had been thinking about it so much and grinding, you know, doing everything I could for so many years. And then I was like, I need a break. I need a reset. And then it was kind of interesting because I, I wound up booking like the most things in like that year, probably I was back and I just didn't, I don't want to say I didn't care, but yeah, I wasn't focused on it. I was focused on other stuff. And then, no. but that's exactly what we're saying, exactly. isn't it? Exactly, it is. It is a hundred. Exactly what we're saying. Of like what? when you weren't like, yeah, clutching onto it, and you were more like, eh. When I was, could take or leave it. Then, then you booked a bunch of stuff. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But you know, at the same time, I also feel like I should acknowledge that, like, part of that dare I say privilege <laughs> like mm-hmm. it wasn't privilege. Like we we worked on it, right? But I, I feel like part of that was because I had spent like you know how many years studying it and going after it that then when it was time for the sort of like, eh, you know, right. I could show up and be ready. I didn't have to obsess about it. I could show up and be ready. Right. No. Yeah. yeah. That makes so, sense. But yeah. But anyway, yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast in the Seattle, LA, uh, the, the interwebs here as, as nobody calls them. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, um, thank you. Samantha, I've always been such a fan of yours as a person and oh. your work and of your work. And so I'm thrilled to be asked. Thank you. Goodness, that is just the nicest of you because you're one of my very favorite uh, teachers that I got to have when I was in LA or mm. actually period. Don't tell the rest of them. They could probably, they were, they were, no, they were all great. They were all great. <laughs> But I distinctly remember like what I learned in your class. And I kind of wish I was able to have more from you. So when I saw you started the sketch school, I was like, oh, this is great. Like it's a way to kind of learn something from all the way up here. But you guys, yeah, definitely um, please check out what Mark Gorzeka is up to. Go to thesketchschool.com to find out about what classes he's doing and offering. And then also, of course, um, if you're looking for a performance coach to help you with that voice, body, mind connection, to communicate with more of your whole self, whether you're actor, public speaker, um, looking for help with uh, work, relationships, you know, you can always reach me at beyondtechniquecoaching at gmail.com. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please like, subscribe, share. Those five-star reviews on Apple's you leave and your comments really help to help spread the message, get the word out. And then if you are financially inclined and able, you can always go on over to Patreon at Beyond Technique uh, with Samantha Rund and show us some support that way because it helps everything stay up and running for the podcast. Thank you again and stay safe and stay healthy.